Gateway. Happy Sunday to you. So glad to be here with you. So over these past number of weeks and months, really, really since the beginning of the year, we've been working our way through the gospel according to Mark, and that is where we find ourselves this morning. You know, what's interesting is one of the things about the Bible is that it assumes that we don't know who we are. So as we come to the gospel according to Mark, Mark is assuming that we don't really know who we ourselves are and that we actually need help to see and know and understand who we truly are. And just consider this with me for a little moment longer. We come into the world without understanding. We really uh, have no understanding of life's fearful or wonderful things, including ourselves. Inevitably, we spend the bulk of our lives trying to discover what those fearful and wonderful things are and how we make sense of all that. And I, I have a, a close-up experience of this on the daily, so I have a toddler, and that means we're discovering all the things from creepy crawly little bugs that go bzzz and uh, what your, you know, your butt does, like, and things like that. It's just one discovery after the other. It's beautiful. It's also intense, it's sad, but it's also strange. It's, it's this thing that doesn't stop when we stop toddling about. We continue to discover all of life's fearful and wonderful moments through family and politics and sex and sports and work and teams and tribes and masks and gender, like the list goes on. And in all of this striving to understand, we're striving also to situate ourselves in the world, to make sense of what's around us. And what's curious about this process is how slowly but surely it begins to shape us along the way. Like, we don't hold that understanding we get out here. We hold it close. We allow it to shape us so that we end up living out of it. And what I mean is that as we grow up, we grow up in a particular place with a particular people, and that shapes us. We we have experiences, and so we experience some things and not other things, and that shapes us. We hear some stories about the world and not other stories. That shapes us. You see, amidst all this shaping, the Spirit of God through the Word of God, like the Gospel according to Mark, comes along to meet us in our journey to say a new thing to invite us into a new story, to help us see ourselves truly and fully. And this can be beautifully frustrating like the rest of life because where we assume that we know who we are when we come to the Bible, the Bible assumes the opposite. <laughs> it's exposing. For instance, in the gospel according to Mark, we're invited to consider, to be curious about who we are as we look to Jesus. And this is beautiful. After all, Jesus is the most compelling, in my opinion, human to walk the face of the earth. He's intentional and personal. He's present and disciplined. He's compassionate and strong. He's the full embodiment of the invisible realities in the flesh. He comes with grace and truth. There's so much potential as we behold what it is to be fully human in the face of Jesus, it is beautiful. And to see ourselves there, oh my goodness. Mark graciously doesn't stop there. He also invites us to be curious, to 
consider who we are as we observe the disciples, those who are closest to Jesus. This group of people who, though close to Jesus, have these hardening hearts moving away from Jesus. A group who, in Mark's gospel, grow increasingly ignorant. They just don't know the way of Jesus in the world, even though they're near him. They're not with him. How frustrating it is to see ourselves reflected back to ourselves in the disciples. And we ask things like, how can this be? Like, how can you be near Jesus yet not with Jesus? How can you be close but far at the same time? A friend and I were talking about this very thing the other day over lunch, and he shines some light on this for me that I hadn't really seen up until our conversation. And he did so by saying how frustrated he is with the phrase social distancing. Immediately after that, he proceeded to pick up his phone and say, we have been social distancing for a long time, Kyle. He then like went on to tell me how he prefers the phrase physical distancing because that actually describes what we're doing. And then the conversation took a turn and it made something click in my mind. See, he started talking about how we can be physically present but socially distant. And the converse of that can be true as well, that we can be physically distant and yet socially present. And the, the thing that clicked was that with is different than near. And Mark, Mark wants us to see this. He wants us to have a full picture of ourselves, the beautiful potential of life with Jesus and the frailty of the disciples who are near Jesus. Beautifully frustrating. And in Mark 8, the chapter that we're in today, I know, one whole chapter and one teaching, bizarre. Uh, but the chapter that we're in today, we will see this with greater clarity than at any point so far in the gospel according to Mark. That's why we're taking it all in at once, so that we might see that. See, in Mark 8, we actually experience this shift, subtle though it may be, of, of wondering who Jesus is to how Jesus will be who Jesus is. That's, that's a mouthful. So we're experiencing this shift from who Jesus is to how Jesus will be who he is. In other words, Mark invites us to live in the tension of understanding Jesus, and he does so by revealing the cross. And so I want to I want to encourage you. We're not going to read every word in Mark chapter 8 today. So I want to encourage you. Take the time when we're done here. Obviously, and read Mark chapter 8. The the whole thing. If you're feeling really bold, go to Eugene Peterson's version the, the message and pull that thing out. Read the gospel according to Mark. If you have an hour, do this. See how chapter 8 functions as this major shift. Feel the weight of that tension of who can understand. And at the start of Mark 8, bring that question to mind afresh. See if you feel it like you feel it here in these next moments. And before we do so, let's just have a quick word of prayer to ask the Spirit to do the thing that the Spirit does, and that is lead us to Jesus. So pray here with me. Father, I thank you that you do, through the Spirit of God and the Word of God, lead us to Jesus. Would you do that now? 
Would you soften our hearts? Would you help us to see that there is life and life to the full to be had with Jesus wherever we are? In your name, amen. So at the start of Mark 8, in verse 1, we meet Jesus still in the Gentile territory. If you remember, they're in the Decapolis, which means that Jesus' followers are there with him. And then Jesus' words here are to Gentiles, to non-Jews, presumably people outside of God's covenant promises. This is a big deal. <laughs> and these are the words that Jesus shares with them. This is Mark chapter 8, verse 2 is where we pick up. And he says this, I have compassion on the crowd because they, listen, they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way and some of them have come from far away. Just notice, notice how Jesus' ministry is still moving toward all the wrong people. And, and hear his words again, especially these. He says, I have compassion on them. And why? Because they have been with me. So this is how Jesus describes his followers, like those who are close to him, those who are the heirs of the covenant promise. This is what Jesus says to his disciples, that they are to be with him. And yet these words are words Jesus uses to define a foreign people, and not just any foreign people. L let me remind you, these are people from the Decapolis. This is the place that houses the Roman military oppressors. And in that place, Jesus encounters those who desire to be with him. And the response that flows out of that desire to be with Jesus is compassion. And now who's Jesus talking to here? Well, he's talking about Gentiles, but he's talking to his disciples. Man, this is like a, this is like a deja vu. If you've been with us in the gospel according to Mark for some time now, you'll remember that this is not the first time that Jesus feeds a large crowd. See, in the first feeding episode, the one with the 5,000, Jesus has compassion on the people there as well. They're also hungry. And Jesus' compassion there, just like it here, demands that he not send the people away. Can you recall what happened in that first episode? Yeah, Jesus tells his disciples to feed the people. They can't imagine how, and so Jesus shows them how. He multiplies a sack lunch to feed thousands. And here in Mark 8, it's like Jesus' words are the scaffolding upon which the disciples can stand and safely step into the kingdom power fully available to them. So they can feed the crowds. So they can live into the reality of life with Jesus. And what's their response? Jump down to verse 4. They say this, How can one feed these people? with bread here in this desolate place. Does it sound like they understand? Does it sound like they get it? D does it sound like they understand the movement of Jesus's compassion? Well, yes and no. You see, they get what Jesus's compassion does, that it is compelling him to move on behalf of these people, and yet they don't see it all. 
And I don't know this is if this is really the tone of the disciples, the tone with which I read their question, this one where, uh, but th this is what I think that they're saying is, how can one feed these people as though they are separate from them, these Gentiles, the other? How can one feed these people as though they're separate from them and, and Jesus' compassion can't bridge the gap? I mean, just recall, these, these are the men who've seen the authority of Jesus on display. They, they've witnessed his teaching. They've witnessed him casting out demons. My goodness, they witnessed him feed the multitudes. They themselves have cast demons out in Jesus' name, carrying with them the authority of Jesus. So apparently you can be with Jesus. No, excuse me. Apparently you can be near Jesus, but not with Jesus. We're left wondering, who can understand this Jesus? And some scholars suggest that at this point, we take it easy on the disciples. We forgive their ignorance and, and we really keep Jesus the main thing. And I, I'm encouraged by that impulse to keep Jesus as the main thing and the magnitude of his work as well. Like we ought to note that there's grace tucked into the disciples' failures, that, uh, that God knows failure's never the final thing. That God works with us even in our ignorance. And just as Jesus invites the disciples to serve, we too are invited by Jesus to serve despite our shortcomings and failures. Yes, yes and amen to that. So I agree. Failure is never final. And Jesus' accommodation here, it is beyond gracious. But this is still an indictment from Mark. It's still the disciples not getting it. That there's more to being with Jesus than being near Jesus. Like proximity doesn't do the whole thing. That's like the power of Jesus doesn't just magically diffuse into the life of the disciples because they're with him, excuse me, because they're near him. Like authority and power come from the withness, not the nearness. And we see that in the next two episodes, all the more, Jesus after this little scene of multiplying the bread and the fish, he comes back to the other side. And he, he comes to the Jewish side and it's, realizes that there in that space, um, the same thing is happening. <laughs> Tension with the religious leaders. And he's quickly entangled with them in an argument. And we wouldn't really know what the little spat was about, but I can imagine Jesus said something witty and winsome and plainly obvious, uh, to which the Pharisees said something like, well, prove it or give us a sign. And this, I mean, that's just conjecture on my part. However it went down, Jesus then shared these words grieved in his heart. He lets out this sigh and then says this in verse 12. He says, why does this generation seek a sign? I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Does the feeding not count? Does the casting out of demons not count? Does the calming the seas not count? How many signs are enough signs? See, it's ironic that they ask for a sign because Jesus just multiplied bread in the wilderness, which is a total God move. This is what Yahweh does in their foundation story, in the Exodus account, he gives them manna in the wilderness, bread from heaven. 
And they still want Jesus to prove himself, to prove that his kingdom message is legit. And we're left asking, who can understand? And so in the face of this, Jesus just gets in the boat and he leaves. I think there's wisdom for us to like take from this little interaction. So Jesus isn't opposed to disagreement. He just knows how to disagree well. And when that disagreement slides into quarreling, he won't abide quarreling, so he leaves. Then on the boat, we see this in verse 15. Jump there with me. Jesus says, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing, this is the disciples now, they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? Like 12? In the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? Seven? They said to them, do you not yet understand? Again, Jesus invites the disciples to understand that his ministry is more. It's more than physical provision. It is that. And it's more. It's more than bread. And the point is not that they have the wrong bread or no bread at all. That's that's just an illustration at this point. The point is that their hearts are at risk. And, and what are their hearts at risk to? Well, to the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod, men who accrue power, men who allow abuse to happen in a temple for people with withered hands to remain there, uncared for. Jesus is saying, watch out for that. Watch out for those who slip into quarreling and live in that space. Be on the lookout for that. See, Jesus wants the whole heart of his follower. And so he calls them to avoid the words and ways of those who've been perverted by power and religiosity, a power that claims to be acting on God's behalf while the weak and the vulnerable are neglected. This is not the power of Jesus. That's a, this is not power at all. This is evil. This is the anti-kingdom. And that's what they're to watch out for. That's what we're to watch out for. Something that zags when the kingdom of God zigs. It's something that may even look good or appealing, but when you start to stare at it and you observe it, you see that its motives are for self-interest rather than for those around who really do need care. And maybe that sounds too simple, but Jesus is saying this simple and plain thing, watch out for these people who have abused power and they start talking about bread. And when they get ashore, awash in misunderstanding, a subtle shift comes to the fore from Mark. And to punctuate this shift, Mark tells us this two-stage healing. It's the story where Jesus takes a blind man away from the crowd, the crowd that brings this blind man to Jesus to be healed. And then he heals him partially, takes some saliva in the ground, rubs on his eyes. Uh, and, and then 
he heals him completely. And at first you may think, okay, uh, maybe Jesus is still a little bit frazzled from the whole bread debacle and he just needs to warm up a little bit, like his healing juices need to get flowing. But that's not the focus of Mark. This isn't like a, a case for Jesus's divinity to be dismissed. The miracles of Jesus don't altogether hold up that he is divine. I mean, Elijah prayed and the rain stopped, so is Elijah divine? See, this is, this is not about the divinity of Jesus by any means. That's not Mark's focus. Remember, this is where Mark is preparing us to see how Jesus is who he is. Therefore, the healing stands as this living object lesson, like a living parable for the disciples to see themselves into. Just as Mark stands as the living word for us to see ourselves into. The disciples see, but they don't see. They understand, but only as those near to Jesus, not as those who are with Jesus. And to help this sink in even further, just as Jesus took the man away from the crowds, Jesus takes his disciples away. He takes them away on a journey north. And on the way from Bethesda to Caesarea Philippi, with this living parable of a blind man slowly regaining sight, Jesus asks this question in verse 27. Go there with me. He says, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Well, others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. Just stop right there. Can you imagine everything packed into that question? Like I'm struck by Jesus' willingness to put that question forward, to ask something that could leave him hanging. What if they say something bad about you, Jesus? See, Jesus is so assured in who and whose he is. He's so assured in his belovedness that irrespective of what response comes forward, he's not phased. So the question is not for Jesus to receive some sort of verbal affirmation or accolade. The question, and the question's for the disciples. And we actually see this further in verse 29. Continue there with me. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Very next verse, Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. See, immediately, Peter, the disciple's spokesman, the, the rock, or perhaps the hard-headed one, speaks up and names Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And in this moment, all of the tension around who Jesus is, like the cumulative weight of eight chapters dissipates, but only in part. See, Peter names Jesus as the Christ on behalf of the disciples. And it's like, yes, they see it. Okay, they've had these kind of hard-headed moments in the past, but now they're getting it. They just, they name Jesus, this is who he is. And we know that from the beginning of the gospel, according to Mark, that Mark knows who Jesus is. And we know who Jesus is, but all along the way, the disciples do not know fully who Jesus is. But you see, just as soon as Peter speaks, Jesus speaks as well. And he tells them to keep silent. And notice that he tells them 
to keep silent. And Peter can oftentimes get a bad rap as one who speaks his mind, and it's true in part because he just lets it ride. But he's their representative. So Jesus turns to all of them and tells them to keep silent. And the force of this verb there is strong. Do you remember the stories where Jesus tells the demons who name him as the Son of God, the Son of the Most High, and he tells them to shut up and keep silent? It's the same word, the same force that Jesus uses here with his followers. How can it be that they say they see Jesus' messianic identity. They recognize this is true. Like, this is true. Jesus is the Messiah. But the very next thing Jesus does is silence him. It's like, how can this be? Don't they have the understanding? Well, yes and no. To Jesus is, is not just proclaiming God's kingdom. He is doing that, but he's also claiming to be the king. And so, yes, they see Jesus, but they see him in reverse. They see a king and imagine him into a kingdom that they want, a kingdom of their own imagination. And in doing so, they miss God's work through Jesus. And we see this in verse 31. Go there with me. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. You see, the ethic of the kingdom extends from the reality of the king. And the disciples, they want to impose an ethic upon the king in their own making. They see Jesus in reverse. Because those who inhabit the kingdom, that is the kingdom of God, they live out of the ethic embodied by the king. The disciples don't see Jesus because they're, they're blinded by their own vision for Jesus' life. It's this theme that develops over and over again in Mark because he wants us to see that we can, will, and do see Jesus into our own vision. So we just have to stop every time it comes up and ask, what am I asking to Jesus to do that is not what Jesus is here to do? Who am I asking Jesus to be that he himself never identified as? We just have to be willing to wade into that space lest we have Peter's move here, lest we stand firm in our vision for Jesus and respond like this in verse 32. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. The, the intensity there is that Peter didn't just rebuke him singularly, he rebuked him over and over again because Jesus wasn't living in to his messianic identity according to Peter's standards. Because the Messiah doesn't suffer. The Messiah conquers. The Messiah isn't rejected. No, the Messiah asserts his position and fights for his rights. And certainly the Messiah isn't killed. Because a dead Messiah is no Messiah at all. And in that sense, I, I can't understand 
I guess in part, Peter's impulse to clap back and correct. And yet, let us hear Jesus' kingly response of who can understand in verse 33. But turning, Jesus receives the rebuke. Do you notice this? Those two words, but turning. Jesus receives the rebuke and he goes on to say this. And seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and in turn the disciples and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. To be with Jesus is to deny a vision of flourishing absent from the cross. To be with Jesus is to embrace the cross because there is no Jesus and in turn there is no Messiah apart from the cross. To say that I can have the kingdom without the cross is to deny the king who went to the cross. See, how many of us will fight for our rights but never bear the weight of a self-denying cross? This is upside down in the world and moment we live in, where rights are esteemed more than responsibilities, where me is greater than we, but Jesus is calling us and Mark is calling us and the disciples are calling us to see ourselves fully, that we are not but one person in the scope of the world, We are called to a kingdom that cannot be shaken, but it's a kingdom formed and forged on the crucible of the cross. And Jesus doesn't stop there. Go on with him, with me in verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me, in my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will I, excuse me, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." So who can understand Jesus? Those who embrace the cross of Jesus. So we assume we know who we are, but we're walking around saying that we see the world clearly when we're seeing it like trees. Jesus wants to call us forth into the glorious light of the gospel so that we might fully see, so that we might not be dismayed at the prospect of death, knowing that three days later, resurrection comes. You see, church, I hope that we can hear Jesus' call here. I don't know if you heard it, but Jesus said this, anyone, 
anyone, the oppressor or the oppressed, anyone, black, brown, white, anyone, he, she, them, theirs, anyone can come to Jesus, provided they pick up their cross, provided they're willing to lose their grip on their version of flourishing in this life and embrace the gentle and yet challenging way of Jesus. The call for anyone who's willing to do that is to fix our eyes, to fix our minds, our hearts, our imaginations on the things of God, on the ethic of the kingdom of God embodied in the king in the life, in love, the sacrificial death, and the resurrection of Jesus. So who can understand the one who embraces the cross? See, just this past week, we said, and we will continue to say, that Jesus without the cross is not the Jesus we encounter in the scriptures. Right now, many of us are being forged in the crucible of suffering. And we don't want to be there any longer. And suffering feels different for each of us. If you're like me, I don't want to feel those negative feelings. I want to run away. I want to escape. I want a place without pain. And there is a promise of that in the gospel. But the beauty of the gospel is that it says, I know what to do with your pain. I know what to do with your suffering. I know what to do with your heartache. I know what to do with your longing. I know what to do with your disordered desires that bring chaos to this world. The beauty of the gospel is that in the face of Jesus, all of those things, all of those things are rightly ordered and they're ordered on a cross as Jesus dies to death, the penalty for sin. And he extends the invitation that anyone who would go there with him, anyone who would trust themselves, entrust themselves to him there, will not, will not succumb ultimately to death, but that with him they will rise. So the understanding of Jesus is not just the Jesus who saves, it is the Jesus who saves on a cross. Let us see this Jesus. Jesus, would you let us see you there? That, that is the place we want to be, Gateway. May grace and peace go with you.